You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. of Core Curriculum, the show in the Christian Humanist Network where we read slowly through the books on Columbia University's Great Books list. If you've been listening to our previous shows, you know we're currently making our way through Homer's Odyssey. Today we'll be covering books 15 and 16, but before we get there, we need some introductions. I am Jay Eldred, your host for this episode. You may have heard me on Christian Humanist Profiles, Sectarian Review, and the Christian Feminist Podcast. I live in New Bern, North Carolina, where after 11 years of teaching high school history, I made a career change in these last few months and am now working in the admissions department of Craven Community College. Joining me on this journey today are Michael Farmer and Jordan Poss. How are y'all? Good. Good to hear. Why don't, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves? Uh, yeah, I'm Michael Farmer. I am one of the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and I think I have appeared on every other show in this network except for Restoration, uh, which I am unlikely to be asked on, I think, just because of the nature of that show. I live in Sandy Springs, Georgia, and I don't work in academia, so I don't usually talk about what I do uh, on the show anymore. Uh, I'm Jordan Poss. I live in Fountain Inn, South Carolina. I, I am still in academia, amazingly. Um, although uh, uh, the the process of teaching in the time of COVID is testing my willpower in that regard. Uh, I teach history at Green, uh, uh, Piedmont Tech in Greenwood, South Carolina. Um, and you have probably heard me before on many episodes of Sectarian Review and City of Man and one or two episodes here and there of Book of Nature and I think one of the Christian Humanist Podcast's flagship show. All right. Well, if that's it for our introductions, let's get down to Homer's Odyssey. We are, as we said, we're covering books 15 and 16, or as I wrote in my notes for this show, Homecoming, since that appears to be the the theme of these two books. Did any of you see any other major themes in these two books other than home? I would say that's the big one. I mean, there's a kind of um, there, there's a kind of motif of uh, replacement fathers that that shows up not just in these two books, but in uh, several other places in the Odyssey. But it's it's fairly strong in these two books as well. Yep. And speaking of replacement fathers, I think one of those. One of those would be Menelaus, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, which is where we pick up in book in book 15 with Telemachus asleep in Menelaus's household when he's visited by the goddess Athena, who tells him it's time to go home. Um, I'm certain that on some of the previous shows, they've talked about the fact that Telemachus was going out looking for news of his father Odysseus ends up. Um, traveling around to the different islands, visiting old war friends of Odysseus, and then ends here with Menelaus. Did any of you notice anything interesting about Athena? I think it's interesting, something that is interesting uh, about her intervention here is that you've got a whole lot of examples throughout, I mean, the Iliad and the Odyssey of um, gods and goddesses doing kind of amazing dramatic things to to help their favorites out. And uh, here, Athena really doesn't do much more than wake Telemachus up and say, hey, sail and don't stop, and you'll have a good wind and you'll get past this ambush. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which, I don't know. I don't I don't know what precisely to, to make of that, but that's the, the one thing that kind of jumped out at me, because the way the the way the different strands of the plot are set up, you almost expect some kind of narrow escape or, you know, in, in movie parlance, like an action scene uh, in which it, it, I imagine if Peter Jackson adapted this into 24 movies, 
Um, the uh, you know there would be an extended 45 minute chase scene uh, as Telemachus slips through the ambush laid for him by the suitors. Uh, but instead, Athena just gives him a fair wind and gets him on his way, and Menelaus sends him off with breakfast and some gifts. It's like the uh, uh, the end of Argo versus what actually happened to the people leaving Iran in that episode. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I noticed I noticed the same thing, and I know that we, as we've been recording this season, we've re- I've been recording some shows out of order, so I'm not sure if I've said it in the past or we'll say it in the future. But I was reminded that things are are less faded and more fluid in the Odyssey mm-hmm. than they were in the Iliad. Interesting. It's also uh, I, I'm a, I remember I think this is in book 16 when Odysseus and Telemachus are actually talking together. I, I mm-hmm. think it's Odysseus who says it. Something about how it's light work for the gods to elevate people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's as many as as much striving as there is in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, here's a reminder that things are actually pretty easy for the gods sometimes. Yeah, none of them ever seem to break a sweat, do they? No, <laughs> no, not not unless they uh, they're choosing to appear as someone else, right? The, or the one time uh, Diomedes stabs Athena, or excuse me, Aphrodite. Well, I think Jordan, you brought up the, or maybe it was Michael. One of you mentioned that Menelaus would send his, send Telemachus off with with some gifts. And I wasn't quite sure what to make of Helen's gift. I found it interesting yeah. that she had a lit that she had a little aside with him, but I didn't know quite what to make of it. Maybe she was referring to you know her own her own backstory, or I don't know. Hmm. I, I found it a, an interesting interlude, but not quite sure what what was going on there. Yeah, it is strange for a famous adulteress <laughs> to give a guy a wedding gift. For your bride to wear on your wedding day. Yeah, when the blissful day of marriage dawns. Who at that point, he doesn't know who he's marrying yet, so it's a woman as yet unknown. Right, yeah. but whoever she is, you don't want her to be like Helen. And yeah. and this is not and, one and, of the versions of the Helen story where Helen is, is abducted. She, I mean, at least in the Iliad, she very clearly has chosen to go with paris because she recriminates herself for it so yeah it is it is a very a very odd gift for her to give and for telemachus to kind of accept without um without saying anything although my impression is that helen is so beautiful that no man would dare to correct her you know what i mean yeah and at at the phase of life that telemachus is i mean that is when you are that is when a man is maximally susceptible to being overpowered by a woman's beauty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, uh, in a couple of other episodes, we've talked about, you know, one of the – if a theme is homecoming, the, the goal of Odysseus's homecoming is kind of restoration uh, because everything is out of sorts. Everything is out of balance uh, and <laughs> everything is out of order in Ithaca. And yet, despite Helen's un- in unbelievable betrayal of Menelaus that resulted in a ten-year-long war that you know sent thousands down into the gloom, uh, if I remember correctly, they're they're presented as pretty much totally reconciled, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah no, nobody. So nobody I mean, may- maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean they're yeah. They're and, sharing and so a, in, may- in book fifteen, oh, they're ahead. sharing a bed. Yeah. And so, I mean, maybe, uh, of course, they've had 10 years to work on this, uh, but, but maybe... Uh, a long, quiet drive home, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I imagine all those scenes of uh, Don Draper and Betty Draper silently riding in a car back from some event. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's as much uh, history as Helen has, this gift seems to be unironic. Mm-hmm. Um, and and maybe that's a sign, you know, you know, to the the place Telemachus has just left needs restoration so badly, and he's seeing it here in Sparta with Menelaus and Helen, and by sending him off with this token, that's that's kind of a, a tiny point of hope for Telemachus. I, I don't know. What do y'all think? I think one issue might be 
that Clytemnestra has taken over for Helen as the emblem of evil women in the poem. Mm-hmm. So, so Helen's mm-hmm. the evil woman in the Iliad. And again, so evil that she talks herself about how evil she is. But now what, what Helen did looks so much less bad than what Clytemnestra did. If only because what Clytemnestra did killing Agamemnon is permanent. You know, there's no yeah. reconciliation possible after that. Yeah. Hmm. I had thought as well it could be an indication of a future restoration or of a future time when things would be back in balance that the more normal aspects of life would resume. Right. And, and if, if, if and if Menelaus and Helen can patch things up mm-hmm. right. where there's where there's been such a break, then eliminating the suitors <laughs> is gonna be relatively easy. provided Odysseus can come home, which Telemachus is not sure about. Agreed. And I think, Jordan, you had mentioned um, the imbalance that was in Ithaca at the time. And I found that Menelaus' speech about hospitality reflected that desire for balance. He said something, and I'm not quite sure what line it's, it's in, but it's along the lines of that even hospitality has to be balanced that it's possible mm-hmm. to be too generous as well as being too stingy with one's guests. Yeah. And that's why he'll let Telemachus go. Yeah. And that, that struck me again on rereading this, the fact that um, Telemachus indicates that he has to go and Menelaus doesn't hold it against him at all. Um, it's, it's, it's clear that a Telemachus is being driven by something. Uh, and so it would actually be a violation of hospitality to insist that he stay. Um, yeah, that, that balance in hospitality. I, I know we have talked about the the theme of hospitality on a couple of other episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I won't belabor that here. But um, uh, yeah, that is – keep keeping things correctly balanced. Uh, I mean we're – you know, Homer is still hundreds of years away from Aristotle, but the idea – you know, Aristotle's idea of – finding a mean between two extremes uh, is pretty clearly on display with all of these varying examples of uh, how hospitality can go wrong. It also stands in counterpoint to the various people who won't let Odysseus leave. (laughs) Right. As I'm certain other episodes have talked about. Yeah, here it is. Uh, Lord of the War Cry reassured the prince. I'd never detain you to hear too long, Telemachus, not if your heart is set on going home. I'd find fault with another host, I'm sure, too warm to his guests, too pressing or too cold. Balance is best in all things. It's bad either way, spurring the stranger home who wants to linger, holding the one who longs to leave, you know, etc., etc. And I I think we've all been at a party we wanted to leave, but Mm -hmm. the host wouldn't let us. (laughs) Yeah, I lived in Minnesota for eight years. <laughs> oh, yeah. the, the rural South has that too. Yes, they do. <laughs> and and in a way, we 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 almost have a a prolonged leaving here with um with Telemachus and Helen and Menelaus and the others as they're getting ready to leave. We have a an augury, and I did notice that auguries kind of bookend these two these two books mm-hmm. they're not at the very be- they're not the- at the very beginning and the very end but they are close enough that you know we have two repeated themes in there this one um, an eagle uh, kills a goose and I found it interesting first of all that Helen was the one to interpret what it meant and of course you know it's indicating that Odysseus will return home in in triumph. Um, But what struck me was in my translation, she describes the goose as a tame housebird. Do they have different geese in Greece? It was probably domesticated at least. Okay. Because the geese that I have known and even the geese that have supposedly been domesticated, they are vicious creatures. Yeah, they're nasty. Yeah. Yeah. They're not like ducks or chickens. They don't like people. They, they 
really don't. The two, the two, uh, I, I would say things, but geese and peafowl, I'm not going to mess with. Sure. <laughs> All right. Anything else to say about Menelaus's household before we move Telemachus forward? Yeah, I am interested in the way Athena gets him to leave. I'm just going to read this. This is um, this is Lombardo, Stanley Lombardo's translation. Telemachus, you've been away too long. Think of the wealth you left behind at home and all those insolent men ready to devour it. Your journey will have been for nothing. Hurry now and rouse Menelaus to send you on your way so you can find your blameless mother still at home. Her father and mothers are, her father and brothers are pressuring her to marry Eurymachus. Because of all the suitors, he gives the best presents and now has stepped up his wooing. You have to watch out. She doesn't carry off all your treasure. You know what a woman's heart is like. She wants to enrich the house of the one who weds her. Never mind about her former children and the husband she once loved. Once he's dead, she doesn't give any of them a thought. I'm real interested in that because, like, the foundational thing that everybody knows about Penelope is how faithful she is. She has not the slightest um, interest in Eurymachus or any of his presence, and surely Athena knows that. Yeah, my translation was just different enough that that wasn't necessarily what I got from it, and I think that the it, that the um, at least my problem with interpretation was at the very end. Um, you, I'm reading Robert Fitzgerald's translation, and so he his translation leaves out most of the adjectives huh. that were used in yours. So it's very I don't want to say it's cold and clinical, but it's just like, well, this is what a woman is like. But then that paragraph describing how when one is dead, he's forgotten, and you know she's just going to move on. That's not what I got out of his translation. So I'm not saying that that's not what he said. I just didn't read it that way. What does he say? Why don't you read it? So just that very end, I'll pick up where he where they're saying that Eurymachus is the best one. It seems her father and her kinsmen say Eurymachus is the man for her to marry. He has outdone the suitors, all the rest, and gifts to her, and made his pledges double. Check him, or he will have your lands and chattels in spite of you. You know a woman's pride at bringing riches to the man she marries. As to her girlhood husband, her first children, he is forgotten, and they no longer worry her. That is softer. Jordan, you have fagels, right? Yeah, it, it, it aligns a lot more closely to Lombardo. Um, I'm just kind of puzzling over that. That is that is strange. It is, it is interesting that Athena talks about how Penelope is being urged by her her male relatives to marry, but then Athena pivots away to you know a stereotypical capital W woman, right? Like a you know like the kind of women com- comedians joke about, um, or used to anyway. Uh. So I, I kind of wonder if Athena, for, first of all, if this isn't just kind of a mistake, uh, but if, if Athena isn't, um, I mean, Athena is wily, right? We've talked before about how well-matched she is to Odysseus as a favorite. If she's not, uh, not she's not necessarily saying that Penelope is about to do this, but any other woman would, and that's enough of a threat for a callow youth like Telemachus to want to skedaddle. I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe she's just manipulating him because he knows right. she knows what. Because because the gods him. manipulate people all the time. Right. Exactly. Because it is not it is not beneath Athena to manipulate people. We know that. And that's the that is the impression I've gotten from some of the inter, the interactions that Athena has, not only with Telemachus but others. Is that sometimes you know she will she will kind of tailor her message in an often not entirely honest way to uh, provoke them into uh, doing a particular thing. I don't know that's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. I, I feel bad for Penelope. I mean, I think Penelope gets a lot more attention in later versions of the story. I'm, I'm not talking about later Greek versions. I'm talking about like 20th century retellings of the Odyssey gives a lot more space to 
Penelope. And I'm always a little surprised when I go back and read the original text that, I mean, she's in it and she has, she has some important parts, but she is, is not what I would call a major character for most of the, the poem. Like she's one of the reasons that Odysseus is trying to make his way home. And yet she doesn't, her, her feelings don't really matter that much for the poem. And, and it shouldn't surprise me, right? Because certainly the feelings of women don't matter that much in the Iliad with, with a few brief exceptions. Uh, but it's, it's just that when this story gets retold, Penelope ends up being a driving force in it in a way that she's just not here. And so, I mean, Athena can, can speak this calumny about her and, uh, you know, it goes more or less unquestioned. Hmm. Yeah. Like I said, that's not something I picked up on, so I don't know that I have much more to offer on that. Yeah, I wonder if it doesn't have something to do with just plot-wise the way what's going on in Odysseus's house is really kind of static for most of the poem. Um, there's, I mean, if, you know, we were, we were joking about, oh, the, you know, the kind of elaborate, you know, devices that a modern filmmaker might, might bring to something like mm-hmm. this. You'd, you'd have to do the same thing within Odysseus's household in order to maintain interest. But in, in a poem like this, not much really happens within the household. Uh, most of the drama is surrounding it with Odysseus on his way back, Telemachus leaving and coming back. Uh, and you know the the occasional glimpses we get of the suitors plotting, um, but the the nearer you get to the center of the household, the less motion there is. And I wonder if that's not if that doesn't have something to do with that. It, I mean, it, but I guess I guess both. The last thing I, I would I would maybe think about is since since I'm just kind of thinking out loud, Odysseus and Penelope are both characterized by endurance. It, it, throughout the course of the poem, um, but Odysseus's endurance is the endurance of somebody who's got to travel a very long way across a lot of obstacles, where Penelope's is an endurance of holding out in a single desperate situation. I don't know. That's good. I mean, she, if you think about it, and I wonder how much use uh, this this poem got put to in like occupied France or Stalingrad. Hmm. If you think about it, her situation is the situation of a city under siege. Yeah. And and I, I guess when you're a city under siege, there's a lot of temptation to just give in, you know, to collaborate because if you do collaborate, uh, you're not going to get it as bad, right? I mean, th- there's a reason that that much of much of France collaborated with the Nazis because being under siege and being controlled by a foreign state is difficult, right? And and yeah. so I I wonder if it if it helps us to think of Penelope as as a city under siege that is getting closer and closer and closer to falling to the enemy, and and maybe that's maybe that's a a, a sexist way to think about it. I don't know. But it, it, it does strike me that the the other poem we read is a poem about a city under siege. And and this yeah. one might be too. No, I think that's a good comparison. Um, yeah. I mean, if you want to get depressed real quick, uh, read about historical sieges. Uh, because, uh, you know, un, unlike a major battle, the, the victims of a siege can't go anywhere you know they're just kind of stuck there having things happen to them um whether you know whether it's starvation or, or mass murder or, or, or whatever uh it could immediately populate a list of a dozen horrible examples just from world war ii or something but um yeah i, I think that 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 uh, image and especially the parallel it has to troy itself in the other poem is is not a bad one so, moving moving forward, Telemachus is able to leave Menelaus' household. He successfully avoids other hosts that might have kept him as they 
of Odysseus. I think notably, um, Nestor is name checked. I think uh, Nestor's son helps Telemachus get to his ship without actually going to see Nestor. And he meets someone whose name I cannot pronounce. <laughs> I think I, I took to calling him Theo in my head. Theoclymenus. I have no idea. Any, anyone speak Greek better than me? I got no idea. I was going to say that has a pronunciation glossary. It, he, he supplies it as Theoclymenus with the, the emphasis on the cli. So Theoclymenus. Theoclymenus. Did anyone have anything to say about him? As I did not. <laughs> Well, it's hard Although I, sh- I, sh- I shouldn't say that I didn't have anything just to say about him. I thought it it was a parallel kind of to some of the sections that we saw in the Iliad where a certain soldier's parentage and heritage was named off before he was run through with, with a sword or a spear or shot down with an arrow. Although in this case, he's not being killed. He's joining Telemachus's band. But beyond that, I didn't know if there was a greater significance. Yeah, well, I mean, what I would say is that he is an exile like Odysseus, but he's a different kind of exile. Uh, Odysseus has this goal in mind where he's trying to go, and uh, Theoclymenus has lost that possibility, right? He's not allowed to go back to where he's from, and so he is going to find his home... uh, with uh, with Telemachus. Uh, what stuck out to me about it is is especially looking at books fifteen and sixteen again, just kind of one two, uh, right in a row with each other. Uh, this is almost parallel to just in, right in the middle of everything in book sixteen. We're going to get Eumaeus's backstory, mm-hmm. um, which also you know is kind of a there, there's a whole lot of um, hard luck stories here in the middle of the odyssey um you know there's the real story of odysseus which he presents to uh, uh nausicaa and the various people of of Phaeacia. but there's uh, all the made-up ones that he presents to everybody he meets and then you've got some real ones with theoclaminus and uh Eumaeus, uh right in a row with each other um which both feature exile prominently as, as michael pointed out Beyond, beyond that parallel, I'm, I'm not sure what to make of it. It is an opportunity, though, um, to show, you know, to, to point up the contrast of Telemachus with the suitors, because, I mean, as, as soon as Theoclymenus, you know, presents himself and asks for a ride, uh, the forthright, you know, the forthright prince responded, of course, stranger. I mean, just immediately opening up to and providing hospitality to this guy who's just approached him on the beach as he's about to get in the get in the ship. Uh, the immediacy with which Telemachus is ready to offer his generosity is uh, striking in situations like that. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Okay. Then we have a sudden shift, and the sudden shift is actually pretty sudden. We go from Telemachus on the beach, and we go back to Odysseus. And I thought this was somewhat unusual, at least in the translation that I'm reading. Most of the time, scene changes occur with book changes. But here we have a very abrupt shift where one line is literally we have Telemachus, the next line we have Odysseus, there's no talk of gods, there's no talk of, you know, well, meanwhile, back at, uh. back on Ithaca, meanwhile, back at the motel. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yes. We need more Ray, Ray Stevens in these episodes. I was going to stay. We don't. Ray Stevens no. will, will liven everything up. If you think about it, we really don't need more Ray Stevens. <laughs> He's, he's do, our modern Homer. Do we need less Ray Stevens? It's me again, Margaret. <laughs> Speaking of songs of exiles. 
Oh man, nobody oh. under the age of thirty has any idea what we're talking about. Oh, and it's so sad too. Yeah. As a little window into whatever whatever kind of person I've grown into, the very first song I memorized word for word was Mississippi Squirrel Revival. Oh, so yes. for what that for what that's worth. You guys are country, that's for sure. <laughs> I so to return to our smash cut. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> to, to return to Sorry. to return to Greece. Sorry, we're we're not a city of man right now. Um, <laughs> we're getting back to Greece. We're back to Odysseus, and he is in the swineherd's hut. And I know that the swineherd has a name, but his you name has escaped me because I dropped my book as we were talking about Ray Stevens. Eumaeus. Eumaeus, thank you. He is in Eumaeus, Eumaeus's hut in his house, and they are sitting down and talking, and Eumaeus does not know who Odysseus is. Unlike several other people that Odysseus has visited, he said, yep, this is who I am, but not this time. And again, I think that's more for plot, you know, Odysseus is sneaking back home to take the suitors unawares. But as we were just talking about, we're going. the main section of this story doesn't relate to Odysseus so much as Eumaeus himself, because we do get Eumaeus' backstory. Um, did anyone want to summarize that? Or I, or I could give my thoughts. Why don't you give your thoughts, Jay? Okay. Um, I found it interesting. Let me see if I can find it. That Odysseus was asking, you know, how Eumaeus came to be in his position. Was he captured during war or, or something other, something like that? He lists these very, I guess we'd say, horrible backgrounds. And I think that they almost relate to some of the backgrounds that Odysseus made up about himself. I don't know. It feels like a – it feels to me, again, looking at Fagel's. So his candy master asks, you know, how he came to be in this position. Uh, my friend, you really want my story? So many questions. It seems to like a, a fairly straightforward answer. Like, hey, this is – yeah, this is how I got here. Um he tells it in a spirit of high adventure, which is kind of strange. And he, he concludes by saying, this is, you know, here, here where Laertes bought me with his wealth. And so I first laid eyes on this good land. Um, Odysseus answers warmly, so much misery, you've moved my heart. I don't know. That's, that's a really good, that's a really good question. Eumaeus seems to... As much as much bad, as much misery has happened to Eumaeus, he seems to be, you know, reconciled to his lot in life, which would not have been. I mean, that that lot in life would not have been uncommon in that world. Sure. Uh, I th I think it is right. interesting. Yeah, I mean, what has happened to him is unexceptional, you know, uh, and it's interesting that uh, it's specifically the Phoenicians that nab him, um, who we mostly remember today for their, you know, their their alphabet, which everybody borrowed, and the, mm -hmm. the colonies that they established around the Mediterranean. And, of course, you know, if you can find a Phoenician shipwreck, it's a really good – gives you a really good glimpse of just how much they got around because of what you'll you'll find, you know, in the, in the cargo scattered on the bottom of the Mediterranean. No, no so I, I just thought it was interesting that it's Phoenicians specifically because uh, they are famous as traders and merchants, but they – there's there's kind of a fine line between being a trader and being a pirate sure. in this world. Um, so, you know, rather than railing against this fate, as you would expect, certainly a modern person to do, it's, it's interesting to me that Eumaeus is not only reconciled to it, but seems to have devoted himself to being a, you know, loyal member of Odysseus's household. Um, well, if he didn't, how could he live with Odysseus? Odysseus most right? Cause Odysseus, like all the other Greeks um, ransacks towns all the way to Troy. You know, mm -hmm. the 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 Iliad yeah. opens with 
Achilles pitching a hissy fit because the sex slave he stole from a town that had nothing to do with anything uh, has been taken from him. So, like, how do you how do you admire Odysseus if you if you haven't reconciled yourself to the fact that everybody in this universe, right. all the powerful men in this universe, do this kind of thing? Yeah, 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 and especially in warfare because there is zero logistical apparatus for wars <laughs> in this world. I mean, and if, if your army is going to be out in the field longer than the rashes and rations in their bags last, you're going to be stealing from somebody. Um, it's a, I guess if anything, Eumaeus kind of here in telling his story offers us a glimpse of some of the norms of this world. Yeah. I don't know. That was a very circuitous way to answer your question, Jay. <laughs> That's fine. It offered more. I, I think it offered some valuable insight. I have to kind of wonder, I mean, Odysseus says he's moved by the story. It doesn't kind mm-hmm. of make me wonder, did he know this about Eumaeus previously? You you would think so. Um, I get the sense I get the sense that Odysseus is like a good lawyer and never asks a question he doesn't already know the answer to. Sure. Because um, certainly as he's returned to Ithaca, he's just feeling out everybody. Um, and tellingly, Eumaeus is one of the only people that I mean, we'll probably get to this when we talk about book sixteen, but Eumaeus is one of the only people that he even begins to approach and treat as trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Well, again, the rousing pity it, it plays into the persona that he's built up for himself as this world weary, the world weary, the world weary traveler that he has mm-hmm. is claiming to be, and admittedly, he he has been knocked about the Mediterranean quite a bit, but it's not the true story that he's telling here. Yeah. Odysseus's stories are always like 25% true. <laughs> like he, he does reveal himself in a certain way through these stories, but he never reveals himself entirely. Yeah. And then I think uh, it was Jordan, you've brought up several times about a, how how a how a um, filmmaker would approach approach setting this up, and it it would be I think we're getting to one of those sections where we would have some some cut scenes as things come together because as these two are talking into the night, we jump back to Telemachus approaching mm-hmm. the shore and his men setting him you know setting him off in the darkness where no one would really look for him. And they're going to sail on down to the port while Telemachus makes his way across land. And he himself will end up at Eumaeus's dwelling. I don't think I've skipped anything in there. Oh, I did. Um, let's see, because we had another augury in here. Mm-hmm. See, is that at the very end of? Is that at the end of book fifteen or beginning of book sixteen, where we have the hawk and the dove? Let's see. We end. It, yep, yeah, it's at the end of book end of book fifteen. Excuse me. Telemachus has been talking to his his crew, his men, and he's warned them to go down or warned them about going down and not tell or being careful how they tell the people that he's back. In other words, the first people they're going to find out are going to be his mother and therefore also the suitors at home. No one in the port should know that he's back yet. And for me, it's about line 495 or so. It says, these words were barely spoken when a hawk, Apollo's courier, flew up on the right, clutching a dove and plucking her. So feathers floated down to the ground between Telemachus excuse me, and the moored cutter. Telemachus called him apart and gripped his hand, whispering, a god spoke in this bird's sign. I knew it when I saw the hawk fly over us. There is no kinglier house than yours, Telemachus, here in the realm of Ithaca. Your family will be in power forever. So, again, we have that 
symbolism of of victory, but then also we have both birds of prey representing Odysseus and Telemachus. We have Odysseus as the eagle and now Telemachus as the hawk. Hmm. And then if they're the if they're the birds of prey, then also it would I would think imply that the suitors are the are the victims and they're not necessarily portrayed as they're not portrayed as um, challenging targets, I guess we'd say. Right. Yeah, as we'll yeah. as we'll see when the when the final showdown happens, Odysseus and Telemachus aren't going to have any trouble taking these guys out. No, d- despite their overwhelming, just despite the overwhelming odds. Right. Which I think would then bring us to book sixteen, unless anyone has anything more to say about fifteen. I don't. Okay. Let me take a look. Okay, so Telemachus and Telemachus enters Eumaeus's hut, and once again, we have more examples of hospitality. Um, no one. I wouldn't say no one knows who each other is. Obviously, Eumaeus knows who Telemachus is. Telemachus knows who Eumaeus is. Neither of them know yet that Odysseus is indeed Odysseus. But we do have some interesting ex- or an interesting example of hospitality. Um, I found it interesting that Odysseus was willing to move for Telemachus, and I was wondering if that was tr- actually humility of some kind. Or if it was just him playing a part. I took it as him playing his role. Yeah. It's also it's also a test, like everything Odysseus is doing, because if you know uh, he can he can now see that this kid he hasn't seen basically ever uh, is going to be generous to this beggar, which he is, or uh, you know just begin heaping abuse on him like everyone else has, ex- with the exception of Eumaeus, who is closer to the beggar's station than anyone else. Um, so this is an opportunity to see how Telemachus treats someone that he has no reason to treat well beyond the, the customs of hospitality. So then um, we do have Telemachus relating what has been happening in Ithaca and specifically in Odysseus's household. But before, before uh, we get to that, um, Jay, I, I, I think what's most interesting about that the the first few lines of book 16 is that uh, Telemachus treats Eumaeus as his father mm-hmm. um, and vice versa. It, it says, and as a loving father embraces his own son, come back from a distant land after 10 long years, his only son, greatly beloved and much sorrowed for. So did the noble swineherd clasp, clasp Telemachus and kiss him all over. Like, like this, Odysseus's family is Eumaeus's family, and and we we get that in other sections involving Eumaeus, where he talks about how he misses Odysseus more than he misses his own dead parents, uh, and and it, it's clear I do, I don't think Eumaeus has any of his own children that we hear about, and and so he's kind of adopted Telemachus as his son, and um and vice versa, Lombardo has Telemachus calling Eumaeus Papa. Uh, although mm. Fagel says dear old man, which I guess is kind of the same thing as Papa, but certainly doesn't have the same connotation. So I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, Fitz, Fitzgerald has Telemachus calling him uncle. <laughs> he kind of splits the difference which, there, doesn't he? Which I, th- I think in Greek, and it may even still be the case in Greek. I'm not up on modern Greek culture, but I think uncle is a traditionally very affectionate way to refer to any older man. Okay. Because uh, that, that appears in other Greek literature as well. I, I would guess that the Greek, and I don't have any Greek myself, but I would guess that the Greek says uncle and dear old man and papa are more w- ways to translate that into English that unpack that a little bit uh-huh. so that the reader doesn't assume Eumaeus is his literal uncle. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Because papa would be... That that would be a name you could call an older guy who's not your actual father. Yeah, but I mean, you think about who Telemachus is and the life he's lived. You know, his his 
His father is a myth. His father has been gone his entire life, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. And and so he's he's had to make do with this this kind of series of replacement fathers. You have Eumaeus, you have Mentor, you have to some extent Menelaus and Nestor, although that's obviously more recent than Eumaeus and Mentor. But I, I mean, it's it's very moving, and it must be very difficult for Odysseus to sit there and see his only son call this other man Papa or Uncle or dear old man or whatever. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, later, let me see where we are. Later, after Odysseus has revealed himself, um, uh, it's Eumaeus who says exactly, or excuse me, it's Telemachus who says exactly that, isn't it? It's like uh, something to the effect of, you know, Oh, where is it? I was just looking at this a minute ago. So, something to the effect of, you know, you're you're the guy I've heard about. Ah, uh, yeah, here we go. Father, all my life I've heard of your great fame, a brave man in war and in deep, a deep mind in counsel. But what you say dumbfounds me, staggers imagination. Uh, you know, when he, when Odysseus is proposing that they too take on the suitors together, which th- this is something I thought of in a previous episode. But I can't remember if we actually talked about it, but. It's not just that Odysseus has been absent. It's that you think about this with the children of famous people um, who, whether their parents are present or not, the legend of their parents certainly is a part of their lives. Um, you, you know, fam- famously, the children of famous people sometimes have difficulty coping with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, we're, we're getting a little glimpse that Telemachus, you know, of how Telemachus maybe could have gone wrong, uh, considering he, he knows all about his father, but does not know his father. Uh, and he, and he says so. Yeah. That's gotta be tough on Odysseus. Yeah, I, I would think so. And, and do we know at what point he realizes who it is? I guess I, uh, I guess it, it's it pretty pretty quickly. You may have says you've come, Telemachus. Yeah. Oh, I, I misunderstood the question. Yeah, it seems to be pretty immediate that you may knows who Telemachus is. You may knows that. I'm sorry. Uh, when does Odysseus right. know it? Oh. Uh, Odysseus is crafty. I mean, I suspect he knows when he sees a young man that the dogs aren't barking at. Yeah, he probably figured yeah. it out. Yeah, it does. We don't ever get that moment where it explains that Odysseus is realizing it, unless it is that. Yeah, Odysseus noticed the pack's quiet welcome, and then he even tells Eumaeus it must be someone they're familiar with. Right. Those those very I, I've commented on this before in other episodes, so. Forgive me, dear listener, but I mean the, the the skill with which the poet crafts these little subtle interpersonal exchanges, these tiny details of human interaction, is really striking. Um, you know, just the, the little noticing of tiny things, and you know the, the the even the even the detail that Umias drops the bowls where he's preparing wine. Um, the the responses feel so directly observed and so real uh, that it really, really helps sell the larger, more heroic thematic things. Yeah. Again, we have those, those little details that would make a great film. Yeah. It it is almost cinematic sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I think what you were describing and that toward the end of book 15 is almost like intercutting. Mm-hmm. Um, where you're, you know, jumping back and forth between two, uh, edit- editorially jumping back and forth between two narratives, letting them play out in parallel with each other, and they're both building on each other. And I mean, again, here's Homer or whomever, <laughs> uh, whoever uh, doing this in verse, you know, 2,800 years ago. Then continuing the the theme of hospitality, then you may essentially tells Telemachus he needs to show. This, for lack, you know, in his mind, this beggar needs to show him hospitality, 
which gives Telemachus a reason to explain what's going what's going on. Essentially, he says, you know, I can't do it because the house has been overrun. And in Fitzgerald's translation, there was a line that stuck out to me. He said, not even a hero could defeat the suitors, which then leads to Odysseus almost doing what Odysseus does best. And that's, you know, if there's two things he does well, it's fighting and fighting and talking. And in this case, it's the talking <laughs> side of things, giving, giving a Telemachus a rousing speech about how if, if, it, if he were in Telemachus's place, there'd be nothing that could hold him back. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah. And again, I think that is also... Okay, here, I, I see where we're at now. Um, sorry, I kind of got lost in the dialogue there. I think that is Odysseus at least partly playing his part. Since he, mm-hmm. you know, he... It, it, Odysseus is good at talking and very, you know, more specifically dissembling. Um, you know, asking, you know, are your brothers at fault? Um, you know, is there, you know... Give it, giving Telemachus a, a chance to, you know, more clearly explain the situation and try to lay mm-hmm. some blame somewhere. Um, let me see here. Yeah, it's not that all our people have turned against me, keen for a showdown, nor have I any brothers at fault. Um, I am Odysseus's only son. He fathered me. He left me behind at home, and from me he got no joy. So now our house is plagued by swarms of enemies. And elsewhere, I can't I can't find it right right here off the top. Uh, just just in this uh, here we go. Uh, earlier he even says, you know, how can I lend the stranger refuge in my house? I'm young myself. I can hardly trust my hands to fight off any man who rises up against me. So his um, self effacement as a way of apologizing that he can't offer the full hospitality that he would if he were in, in more control of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Telemachus kind of balancing the obligations that are placed on him as the man of the house, but also still trying to find a way to explain that he hasn't completely grown into it yet. Right. He'll get there soon enough. Yeah. A couple more books. He'll get there. Yeah. And the, the bonding of the two of them once they're back together is uh, also really well done and really moving maybe my favorite the, the, the cap that is put on that at the very end of the poem is one of my favorite things is when laertes gets to see his son and grandson teaming up you know both of them having come into their own as a as a son and as a man and as a father uh and then you know just just the uh joy that this sad old man is suddenly getting to experience after 20 years uh and and look at Look at the legacy he gets to leave behind, since it's it's clear that Laertes probably doesn't have much time left. Um, that's that's looking a little further ahead, but um, just these uh, the 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 hope to reach that point is palpable through the rest of the poem. Did you have anything to add to that, Michael? Um, just that uh, when Odysseus does reveal himself to Telemachus, he's he he seems a little cold to me. He, he, he says, Telemachus, it does not become you to be so amazed that your father is here in this house. You can be sure that no other Odysseus will ever come. But I am here, just as you see, home at last after 20 years of suffering and wandering. Uh, you know, I don't know what I would think that Telemachus needs to hear from Odysseus, but I wouldn't think it would be that. Especially given that men in this book, in this uh, poem, are not like averse to being emotional, right? I mean, yeah. when Eumaeus sees Telemachus mm-hmm. in this very book, he he he's weeping over him, um, but nothing like that comes from Odysseus. Yeah, it's it's almost like he's saying, "Who did you expect?" Right. Yeah, I I took that just just looking at it in the context here. It seems like Odysseus is trying to kind of tough talk Telemachus out of the astonishment Telemachus has at the, uh, cause uh, Athena, you know, Athena stroked him with her golden wand. She transforms him right in front of Telemachus's eyes. So at least some of the, at least some of the way I took that was again, you know, Odysseus trying to kind of snap Telemachus out of it. Sure. 
out of this shocking moment because it, I, I was struck. Uh, Telemachus does not take nearly as much convincing as Penelope does. Uh, there is a lengthy section later in the poem where Odysseus has to offer three forms of ID for uh, Penelope for Penelope to be satisfied. But uh, once once Telemachus has snapped out out of this, um, and Odysseus has explained what Ode- what Telemachus has just seen, that's that's enough for Telemachus. And Telemachus threw his arms around his great father, sobbing uncontrollably. And then there at the end of that reveal, we have the line that you brought up earlier, Jordan. It's no hard thing for the gods of heaven to glorify a man or bring him low. Mm-hmm. Did you have more you wanted to say about that? I just, that's just what sprang to mind when, when thinking about how easily Athena is able to help Telemachus avoid ambush, but um, it's um, I don't know. That might be kind of a recurring theme through both of the through both of these poems. Um, it's it's hard on the humans, the mortals, that's for sure. But for the gods, it, it's all a matter of just moving the chess pieces the right way and uh, either forcing them or tricking them into doing what you want. It's also maybe a little bit of foreshadowing for since he's specifically talking about the physical transformation mm-hmm. that Athena just worked on him. Um, might be a little bit of a bit of foreshadowing for what you know the little gift of youth Athena is going to give back to Odysseus and Penelope later. I also saw it as a kind of foreshadowing of the fight that will eventually yeah. happen. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think in my notes I wrote, if the gods before us, who can be against us? Because mm-hmm. now having the uh, the identity of Odysseus established, um, I guess we do need to talk. just mention that while this has been going on, uh, Eumaeus has been sent down to Penelope, and at the same time as Telemachus's men are coming up from the port and they arrive arrive about this they'll arrive about the same time delivering news that Telemachus has returned and causing a little bit of consternation among the among the suitors getting the same message from two directions. Right. Cuz their whole plan this time is this whole time has been to uh, to murder him when he gets back and now they don't really mm-hmm. want to do it. They're afraid of it. Well, they do and they don't. They they still want it. So I think their plan changes somewhat to to murder him away from the city where no one will see. Right. Right. Because then you could blame it on Phoenicians. <laughs> right. Which I didn't realize just how many how many suitors were involved. I know in the various adaptations that I've seen, and even in my head, I might have had maybe a dozen or two men at most involved but i think that there's something like 88 numbered men plus retainers and armorers and minstrels and all of their their hangers on i know when i was when i was rereading this for this episode and i came all across the line that it's like there's not just a couple of men there are scores it's like okay so there's at least 40 and then they start listing the various men from the different towns or towns and families around Ithaca. And I think I counted up 88 numbered men plus the camp followers, we might say. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like the Iliad. It's a clown car. Once you, once they start coming out, (laughs) which also made, well, now that you said that it made me wonder just how big Odysseus's house was. Right. Well, how big Ithaca is this? You would think it would be half the population of Ithaca. Well, it's. I would think that at least every family on Ithaca is represented. Yeah, some of them are coming from neighboring islands. I remember that. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good chunk of the local high school. <laughs> Which I mean, that's that's part of the tension at the very 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 end of the poem, right? Is that basically everybody in Ithaca has lost somebody. Um, and there's got to be some way to bring resolution to this, or uh, Odysseus is going to just be killing vengeful family members for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
uh, we can leave that for the listeners to find out about later. Yes. And so having numbered the number of the suitors, um, Odysseus is going to continue his disguise, you might say. No, he he outlines the plan for Telemachus for Telemachus to take him back to back home, back to Penelope. But Odysseus is going to stay in disguise as a beggar, I guess, to see how the suitors will treat him, but also to get the lay of the land. Mm-hmm. Which I they can even take that de- both ways. Go ahead. Oh yeah. Well, they, they even debate that, which I thought was interesting. Where uh, Odysseus is kind of. Uh, proposing sort of moving from farm to farm among his you know various retainers and tenants and slaves presumably to see who is still loyal and who isn't and Telemachus basically says there's no time mm-hmm. um, you know it, but but he does you know Odysseus says essentially you know fair enough but I need to at least see who is still loyal to us in the house and also, in a bit of foreshadowing, Telemachus tells him that not even the maids have all been have right. all been loyal. Right. That's the yeah. real inside information that's more damaging than anything else. Mm-hmm. But we do, we do have those basic plans of stay in disguise, get their weapons, or get what weapons you can, find out who's loyal. And then I also find it interesting that Odysseus says he'll wait for Athena's signal. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you know there's a god on your side, you may as well let them lead. Uh, that's also assuming she'll show up. That puts a great deal of... I, I think Odysseus is putting a little bit more faith in Athena than he might have in other parts of the book. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Trying to see what more... I wanted to say without without spoiling anyone else's thunder that's coming after us, because again the end of books of book sixteen is the plan, and then seventeen on is the execution of the plan. Well, the other thing I wanted to talk about, which doesn't really have anything to do with the plan, is uh, what uh, Eurymachus says to Penelope. Uh, Penelope mm-hmm. tells the sitters to cut it out. She has found out about this plan, and she's not happy about it, as you might expect. And Eurymachus says, Penelope, Icarius's wise daughter, cheer up. Don't be so upset by all this. Yeah, don't be upset that I'm going to kill your son. There's not a man alive, nor will there ever be, who will lay hands on your son, Telemachus, while I still breathe and look upon this earth. Anyone who tries, I give you my solemn assurance, will spill his black blood around the point of my spear. No, I too often sat on Odysseus's knee, and the great hero would put roast meat in my hands and make me sip red wine. And so Telemachus is dearest of all men alive to me, and I guarantee he need have no fear of death from the suitors. That's it. From the gods, there is no avoiding it. So you have here yet another person with a... uh, with a kind of replacement father, here it's here it's mm. Eurymachus with Odysseus. It's it, it it's just like the the older man younger man relationship is very very important in the Odyssey. Yeah. And and in that vein, that would that makes the betrayal even worse. Right. I think um, fit, yeah, Fitzgerald. So it calls them blasphemous lies in earnest tones. Hmm. And uh, Michael, you mentioned how you know e- even Odysseus at his most dishonest is still being about twenty five percent wise. Um, Eurymachus did not pick up that lesson because this is just a bold faced lie, right? Um, I mean, it's, there's nothing true about what he's just said, and, and the the poet underscores that by saying encouraging all the way, but all the while plotting the prince's murder in his mind. I mean, here, rather than, you know, Odysseus's craft, you've just got straightforward deception. And as I'm looking, I did skip one note that I had made as well. And that was, and again, in relation to, to the gods, it was Amphenomos or Amphenomos, whatever, who says that even if even in the suitor's new plan to kill Telemachus, he's not going to do it unless the gods tell them to. Do we ever, does, 
I'm not certain the the fact is the facts are escaping me at the moment. Do they ever actually consult the gods about their plan, or does Odysseus kind of come in on that? If they do, I don't remember it, but it doesn't mean they don't. Yeah. And then we end book sixteen with Eumaeus coming coming back from the town and pretty much Telemachus, Eumaeus, and Odysseus sitting down to roast pig. And I had good pork old, chops tonight. Good so old barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> I love pulled hog uh, pulled pork. <laughs> I, I don't know how y'all's uh, translates this, whether Fitzgerald or Lombardo, both of whom are really good, um, but Fagel's right here at the very end uh, Umias, after Umias's last bit of dialogue, uh, uh, identifying, you know, um, t- t- reporting to Telemachus what Umias had, what he, what he had asked Umias to be on the lookout for, uh, blah, blah, blah. I think they're the men you're after. I'm not sure. Uh, at, Fagels translates the next bit this way. At that, the young prince Telemachus smiled, glancing toward his father, avoiding Umias's eyes, which I think mm-hmm. is what we would call a knowing grin. Huh. Yep. Um, which is an again an almost cinematic effect. You can picture that immediately. The way that Telemachus and Odysseus can now silently exchange things. Um, I'd be curious to know how y'all's translates that because the the picture Fagel's paints is very vivid. Lombardo says Telemachus smiled, feeling his ancestor's blood. And glanced at Odysseus, avoiding the swineherd's eye, feeling his ancestor's blood. That's ancestors plural, possessive. Hmm. And mine says Telemachus, now strong with magic, smiled across at his own father, but avoided the swineherd's eye. It's a great moment. It really is. It's a nice little detail. You don't think of these epic poems as having tiny details. Right. Well, we are just past the hour mark. Do we have anything to say as we head out the door? I think I've said everything I had. Yeah, likewise. I feel like we were pretty thorough. Well, dear listener, we do thank you for listening along as we as we read along with Homer's Odyssey together. The core curriculum is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and we look forward to talking with you again.